Thought Bubble Audio. Look, up in the sky! You will never find the more wretched hive of scum and villainy. Welcome to Beer with Geeks with Tim and Frank. Who are you? I'm Batman. I am Iron Man. Your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. Hi, Christopher. I'm Nero. My name is Inigo Montoya. You're a wizard, Harry. A couple of guys with a couple of beers and a whole lot of pop culture nostalgia. Make it so, number one. Ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles. Name the dog in the ant. Life finds a way. I am serious. And don't call me Shirley. Now sit back and crack open a cold one. Because it's time for Beer with Geeks. It comes in paints? Shaken, not stirred. Great Scott! I was way off. I knew it started with an S, though. Hi, and welcome to Beer with Geeks. We're two geeks geek out with beer. I'm Tim, and with me, as always, is my man who loves to drum. It's Frank. How are you today? I am marching to the beat of my own drum and uh, and doing a okay with it. How about yourself, my friend? Um, Frank, come back. Stop marching. We have a podcast. Oh, you okay. Have to I guess come yeah, come this do, way. Come I'll, this way, Frank. I'll just put the come. put it down right here and we'll thank uh, you. Okay. <clears throat> we'll talk. Thank gosh. Thank gosh. It's some electric drums, you know, because I can just turn that off. Oof. I don't need to listen to you through the floors or anything, even <laughs> though we live miles and miles apart. Um. So, Frank, we are actually joined by a special guest today. Would you like to introduce him? We are. Uh, I'm very uh, excited to have with us today uh, senior staff writer at comicbook.com and podcaster in his own right, Mr. Russ Burlingame. Welcome to Beer with Geeks. Hi, guys. Thanks very much for having me. And uh, apologize that just as you were introducing me, uh, my daughter came trouncing up the stairs pretending to be a dog. <laughs> you know, it wouldn't be 2020 it, it actually, if someone's kids weren't in the background um, imitating their pets. So I think that's yeah. okay. Yeah. I think it's we're just, all used it to that. kind of works point. because I really didn't know if it was a dog or not. So you can tell <laughs> that her impression is really good. That, she's like, doing great. that could be a dog, but it could also be a child. <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty sure my wife is doing bath in the room next door. And so both the girls probably are going to pop in here with no clothes on in a second. <laughs> you know we're an audio oh, podcast only so it's fine yeah it's okay. yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> well hey listen well, thanks thanks for joining us today uh we're gonna get into a topic that you know a whole lot about but uh before we do that um let's talk about beer is there anything you've been drinking recently russ uh well uh, the thing that i've been drinking most recently is all gone and so i'm kind of cheating today um <laughs> my my father-in-law just brought home uh, the Sierra, Sierra Nevada's Narwhal. It's an Imperial Stout, uh, mm. which is Sierra Nevada is my like go-to like boring beer. Like I enjoy it, but there's nothing particularly creative about it. And so uh, I'm having that. Uh, the thing that I would recommend, the thing that uh, that like gets the most play in this house, because I live with my in-laws and my father-in-law is like a big beer guy. I'm less so. I'm more liquor. Uh, but we have this thing, uh, La Fin du Monde which is oh uh, yes yeah it's like a canadian triple uh it's very kind of creamy and it's got kind of a, an aftertaste to it but I, I like it a lot and that that tends to be uh, a pain in the butt to find right now because with the pandemic and everything uh anything international is a pain uh, we have this grocery store chain wegmans where i am where you can oh get yeah it. i know wegmans yeah uh, but uh if you're sending somebody else in to do your shopping for instance or if you're using the app uh in new york or at least not in all of new york state but in my county uh you can't do booze that way like uh-huh. you, you, uh-huh. so our beer has been fairly limited to like the one time a month that we actually go out to a store instead of having the app do it for us gotcha oh, gotcha that gotcha is, that i have heard of that beer have not tried it myself but i'm gonna i gotta hunt it down because i am always down for a creamy beer yeah always. it's not super hard to find but it, it, it like i said in my area right now it's kind of a pain in the butt yeah, I think going to the store is kind of a pain in the butt right yeah. now. Never, never mind and, and hunting it, down a beer. It also like some of the some of the rarer stuff. It's hard because Wegmans allows people to build their own craft six pack, and so anything where it's like no, there's twelve bottles in the building. Uh, eventually, it's going to get down to where there's three bottles in the building, and then you can't even look for a six pack. Right, right. That makes sense. Right, that makes sense. Mm. Um, Frank, what are you drinking? Uh, well, you know, the topic of beer kind of uh, uh, going off of the Fin du Monde. Um, this is not a triple, but um, I do love the Fin du Monde. I do love triples. I love all things Belgian. And I think I mentioned a few weeks ago on the show that I had been working through a, a case uh, of uh, 
Belgian beers that I ordered. And so tonight I'm working on a, um, I, I don't know how exactly to pronounce it, but I'm doing my best. The Duchesse de Bourgogne, uh, the Duchess of Bourgogne. Uh, the, uh, it is a Flemish red ale. Um, so it's, um, it's actually a little bit tart, a little bit sour, um, which is not my usual, but nice. Um, yeah, nice. And uh, uh, yeah, I'm, I am enjoying it uh, a whole lot. Um, this I got this with a bunch of um, bunch of other Belgians, and um, this is the last one I've got of that of that uh, set. So I'm just enjoying it, sipping it, and enjoying it with you guys, um, and suddenly in for a good conversation here. But Tim, what about you? What are you drinking tonight? Well, one, I would like to say, Frank, that sours have been the weird theme of 2020's Beer with Geeks because I think for the past, I don't know, maybe all of the summer months, most of my beers were sours. And again, not my usual, but they were always kind of nice. Um, so I'm glad that you're picking up what I'm putting down, Frank. Nice. I like that. Uh, I'm going to go off of uh, Russ, <laughs> Russ's boring but good. Uh, I'm drinking a Sam Adams Sam 76 because oh, it's yeah. election season, everybody. There you so go. So go out and vote. <laughs> that I lo- That's one way to rock the vote that I can get down. I, I, uh, I love that. I, I should say uh, that talking about beer, uh, I should plug uh, my friend Carla. Her, she goes by Beer Babe on Twitter. And uh, she was one of my best friends in high school. We dated in college and we've stayed friends for you know, the 15 years since then or whatever. And uh, whenever I need somebody who's smarter than me, like when, when one of these, uh, you know, when Hellboy had his own beer or when Jay and mm-hmm. Bob did their own, you need somebody who can speak like intelligently on a dime. I always call up Carla and I'm like, if I give you like 10 bucks, can you write something for comic book? <laughs> nice. <laughs> Which I'm nice. not allowed to do anymore because we got bought by CBS, but uh, that was what we did for a very long time, and her feed is uh, is often, as you can imagine by the handle, uh, full of interesting beers. I'm following now. Uh, yeah, I, like, I just followed. Just, I just started following. Beer writer discussing craft beer in Maine and beyond. Is this beer name okay? <laughs> I love it. I, I spend a board. I spend a lot of time in Maine. It looks like she's based out of the Portland area. I spend a lot of time up there because my yeah. wife is from there, um, and so we spend a lot of time up there and have toured many breweries up there and, and love love the beer culture up there. So Carla yeah, definitely something a great 10, follow. 10, 15 minutes in her media on Twitter, and I'm sure you'll see places you've been to. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. All right. I'm, I'm, well, I just followed, so I'm looking forward to that. So, Russ, uh, what brings us together today um, is uh, you're, you're working Mowage. on a new... No. Mowage. 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 You, you did it so I didn't have to. So. Yeah. Yeah, one of us <laughs> had to. Um I, uh, you and I were talking and you're working on a new project, um, that, uh, I think is, sounds like a a hell of a lot of fun. Um, and I'd I'd love you to tell everyone about it and sort of that we can, we can, uh, go from there and, and transition into what we're, what we're going to be talking about today. Yeah, sure. Uh, so, and this is, this is a thing I've been like kicking around for five years and I finally have gotten, gotten around to doing it. Um, excuse me. I'm writing a book. It's a, it's an oral history. And uh, the title of the book tentatively is the best movie ever. An oral history of 2001's Josie and the Pussycats. Uh, now that's great. Right off that's the top, awesome. right off the top. I'll say uh, for anybody who hasn't seen the film, you don't necessarily get the, the title is a reference to uh, there is an on-screen Chiron that appears in the, in the movie's third act that says in big bold letters across the whole, the whole screen, Josie and the Pussycats is the best movie ever. Join the army. (laughs) (laughs) And so Uh. best movie ever is, is it's both a a wink and a nod to the fact that this, this kind of movie that was a box office disaster has now become a cult classic. And also uh, the fact that that's literally a thing that appears on screen. That's a, my, my, uh, my mask is uh, it says Josie. Nice. Best movie ever. Join the army. That's right. That's right. Okay, <laughs> I did see that on your on your Instagram or your Twitter. Um, yeah. That's <laughs> so that explains that. Well, given that you are you're working on this and mm-hmm. um, you uh, you you are are work with the working title best movie ever. Tim, I've not seen 2001's Josie and the Pussycats. Have you? 
I have not. And I honestly can't tell you anything about it apart from the fact that they're a band and tentatively related to Archie comics. Yes. Like that's that's like about where that's where my knowledge of Josie ends. So I am mm-hmm. this is I am fully prepared for <laughs> hit me with your best shot. So I, I will say you got two things right, which is they're a band and they're tentatively tied to Archie. Uh, in the movie, you there are several references to Riverdale. That's where they're from. Mm-hmm. Okay. But that's basically the extent of any connection to Archie. Like you never at any point meet any of the characters that are outside of the uh, the the immediate Josie bubble. Okay. And uh, last, a couple of weeks ago, the reason that I announced the book when I did was just because I thought I had a hook, uh, which was... Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we passed the 50th anniversary of when Josie and the Pussycats, the animated series, first premiered on CBS. Oh, I didn't even know there was an animated series. I, I, until like, I saw I that like tweet, I didn't know completely ignorant to it, to this it, world. It was one of those many Hanna-Barbera animated series of the 70s that uh, it reused a lot of the interstitial music from Scooby-Doo, a lot of cheap backgrounds and things. Um, what essentially had happened is that uh, the Archie show had happened and it was a huge hit. And then the Archies as a band came out with Sugar Sugar. And that was a massive hit in 1969. Mm-hmm. And gotcha. so in 1970, um, this character Josie had been floating around in the comics for a bunch of years already. Um, and she was like the cool girl. And she was not one of Archie's love interests, but she existed in that space. Um and, she uh, had a special place in Archie then, like somebody Archie's yeah, right? not somebody's not <laughs> fawning over and fighting over Archie, right. but is still better than everyone. That's crazy. Yeah. Well, she was basically girl Archie for a while. Like she uh, was, okay. she had guys who fought over her. Um, and when the Archie show hit big and CBS contacted Archie to be like, look, we went in on this. Can we do some kind of show? Um, they retooled the comic, which at that time was just called Josie. Mm. to be Josie and the Pussycats, and they made it a rock band. And uh, one of the really interesting things is that uh, prior to when they retooled it for the cartoon, Valerie Brown uh, was not a character in the book. There were there were other characters that kind of filled the role she would eventually fill. Uh, Valerie, as a result of this retooling, ended up becoming the first black lead character on a Saturday morning cartoon. That's, oh, that's, that's cool huge. as hell. Yeah. And, yeah. And it was literally like there's actually there's a really good uh, podcast and they, they will end up covering a lot of the same uh, space that I do with the book. But we're covering it in very different ways called Josie and the Podcats. <laughs> and it's a it's a six part uh, examination of the movie. And uh, one of the things they did in their first episode, they talk about the background of it and they talk about how and I can't remember the woman's name for the life of me at the moment, but the the singer who they brought in to be Valerie uh, I can't remember if it was Archie or if it was the network. Somebody didn't want her to be black. Uh, and oh, basically, I see. this singer always was wondered. so damn good that she like sang like this the first black character on a cartoon into existence, basically. Because wow. she was so good that nobody could say no to her. Especially because with the success of the Archies and Sugar Sugar, they wanted a tie-in record. Um, oh, good for her. That's like... yeah. yeah. Slapping them with talent. I love that. And so, uh, so Josie and the Pussycats is best known for, for a lot of people, at least prior to Riverdale as this cartoon from the, from the seventies, it ran for essentially two seasons, um, which, you know, back then seasons of animated Saturday morning animation was super long. And it was like 56 episodes a season or something like that. Wasn't it? In this case, I think it was only like, I think 20 something, I can't remember okay. exactly, but what I will say is that they also went into syndication and especially like when I was a kid in the eighties and nineties, you would see these shows in syndication in like a rotation. So even if things only lasted for a season or two, you would have like a Saturday morning cartoon block that was called something. And like within that block, you'd have an episode of Josie and an episode of Thundar the Barbarian. And oh, just, you know, okay. whatever. Yeah. Well, I think there's that Hanna Barbera super hour or something yeah, like that. Yeah, exactly. yeah. 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 And so, um, so Josie ran for one season as Josie and the Pussycats and then ran for a second season as Josie and the Pussycats in outer space. Of course. Nice. Oh, as Always you do. send him to space. That's yeah. what you do. Uh, 
and they were accidentally elbowed into a rocket by the like mean girl who's always bothering them. Basically, that is <laughs> the that's the most Hanna Barbera like yeah. yes. moment of all yeah. moments. It I'm really also is. weird. I'm going back to you said they retooled a lot of Scooby Doo music. So I did this whole conversation I've just had. Like Josie and the Pussycats, where are you? And then it just, but it does just the rest of the Scooby Doo music. It doesn't change anything. <laughs> it's more the interstitial music, like the dun 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 So the a lot of people mostly knew it for the animated series, and so fast forward to 2001 when. Also, I will say the last appearance they made in animated form was actually not even their own show. After their shows were over, they popped up in a Scooby-Doo movie hour. Oh, uh, um, that tracks. That, oh, okay. When 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 Scooby-Doo was the Scooby-Doo movies for that couple of seasons. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, well, my so, era of watching Scooby-Doo. Yeah, I exactly. think. Yeah. So uh, most people knew it primarily from the cartoon for a while. Like that, the, the Josie and the Pussycats comic ran for a long time, but it was an Archie comic, and like that, there's a limited penetration to that. One of the things they used to talk about is that Archie used to plan essentially for their audience to turn over every two to five years because mm. they were shooting for kids. Oh, um, that's, that's that really interesting. But I that's guess that not, also explains why they've been around for Archie lasted for so long. And, because and it, why they continued to have penetration in things like supermarket and toy stores, because there was a lot less uh, barrier to entry. You don't need to know 20 years of continuity because they're assuming that you grew out of it. Uh-huh. Wow. Uh-huh. Yeah. Smart. Well, and so, and that's, you know, the, it also, it underscores their philosophy with digests where it's like, you just take a bunch of cool old stories that were popular the first time and put them in a hundred page book that you can sell at the grocery store. Um, yep. Sure. Obviously most of that has changed now because Archie is much like everybody else, pretty much driven by the direct market and by collectors and, and the audience has right. aged, but uh, considerably from the yeah. original Archie audience. Yeah. yeah. But in for a long time, that book ran, but it was only like an Archie Comics book. And so the, the, your your appeal to people who actually have spendable money is fairly small. Um, and what happened with Josie is, uh, and I'm giving you a lot of prologue before I start actually pitching the movie. And that's this, just because... All, uh, all of this is very interesting to me. It actually makes me want... Yeah, that makes me want to watch the movie, and you haven't even gotten to the movie yet. <laughs> right. So I love context. So bring it on. So... Uh, by 2001, when this movie was, or 2000, when this movie was being being produced, uh, one of the things that had just happened was American Pie. Uh. And so Universal had uh, an awareness that like, hey, if we put a bunch of hot girls in a movie, people will go see it. And uh, right around the same time, you also had things like Spice World and Coyote Ugly and mm-hmm. Charlie's Angels, and there was a really, there, there was this particular kind of subgenre of girl put girl power exploitation kind of movies, mm-hmm. where it's yep. like it's a movie with a feminist message, but every third but, shot is of somebody's butt. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> yes. it's yeah. it's girls are spies, but also here's Cameron Diaz dancing in her underwear. It, yeah, right, yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And yep. so that was kind of I think what they were going for when they started looking for people to do Josie. And ultimately, the filmmakers that they re- they ended up reaching out to uh, were uh, Harry Alfont and Deborah Kaplan. And they're writers who had done a lot of work, first of all, a lot of kind of uncredited rewrite work, but also they were known for things like uh, a very Brady sequel. And oh, okay. The, they directed their first feature in 1998, which was Can't Hardly Wait. Oh, sure. Yeah. Okay. okay. That movie, relative to its budget, was like a massive hit. Because mm-hmm. it was one of those movies that you made for $8 and it made $45 million, you know? Mm-hmm. Yep. And so uh, when they were looking for people to do Josie, they basically reached out to Harry and Deb directly and said, hey, would you be interested in Josie and the Pussycats? And they were just like, no, I can't see myself doing that. Uh, but then, like, whatever it was they were developing at the time didn't come, didn't go through or, or maybe they just got bored of it, whatever it was. And somebody came back to him a second time and was like, look, we really think you're the fit for this you can do whatever you want. We really just want to use the brand. And, and so then like they got to thinking like, well, what would we do? And uh, a couple of things happened all at once. First of all, they realized like somebody's going to give us money to make a musical, which at the time in 2001 was or 2000 was not a thing that was happening. Right. Cause this is um, pre Moulin Rouge. Right. Before people were like musicals again. We should do musicals. Everyone. Yeah, exactly. Right. Those are back. Mm-hmm. 
And so, uh, you know, that was that was a big part of the draw was like they're paying us to do this musical. And then uh, they had two kind of things. First of all, they, they started a pitch. Uh, and I don't think they ever actually pitched it to the studio from what I understand. But they started, they did start. The first idea was Josie and the Pussy Cats in Outer Space. Oh, wow. So like Starting originally there. it was just like, no, we're just going to go for that. They um, jumped immediately to Beetlejuice does Hawaii without doing yeah. Beetlejuice first. <laughs> <Exactly>. Yes. <laughs> um, but uh, quickly they decided that there was no way to do that with him because I think they were told that they had to keep the movie under like 30 million or something. They have to keep the movie on Terran. <laughs> yeah, to, right. <laughs> on they Earth. have to stay on ground. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so they end up doing this movie and uh, I'll give you the short synopsis before I tell you what it is that they decided to do with it. Okay. Okay. Uh, the movie opens up on a band, uh, a boy band called Dujour, which is my shirt. Uh, nice. The audience <laughs> yeah. But um, Dujour is Donald Faison, Seth Green, Brecken Meyer, and Alexander Martin, who is <gasps> the, the grandson of Dean Martin. I'm so that's, in. I'm so in. I know. You you had me with Donald Faison. Yeah, right? you had me with well, Faison. I didn't yeah. even need the rest. So, one of the things that I think is remarkable about kind of the fact that so many people didn't get what the movie was trying to do and didn't get kind of the satire that was going on in it. This movie opens up with du jour. They're at an airport. There's fans screaming everywhere like Beatlemania. They're about to get on their private jet to go somewhere and they're singing. Uh, their song is called Backdoor Lover. And it's all about somebody who's sneaking into, ostensibly sneaking into his friend's house. But of course the entire thing, the subtext is anal sex. And there's even a, a bit where, uh, Donald Faison puts his arm around somebody and sings just because I, sne I sneak in the back door. Hey, that doesn't make me. And the other guy moves away from him and goes, Hey, <laughs> um, so that's the first like three minutes of this movie is, is it's a backdoor uh, joke, a straight up. Yeah. Is it, but they they were obviously like, you know, NSYNC was in the water at the time and everything. Mm -hmm. And sure. so, uh, backdoor lover as well as the the other du jour song and a, and a handful of the josie songs were all produced by kenny babyface edmonds hmm. um who he produced the first half of the soundtrack and then when they decided they wanted a longer soundtrack with more tracks one of the writers for some of the songs uh who uh i'm now blanking on his last name which is terrible he just passed away from coronavirus uh from adam from fountains of wayne schlesinger Schlesinger, Adam Schlesinger. I was just thinking about him the other day. Yeah. Yeah, he, he produced the second half of the soundtrack. Oh, wow. He's fantastic. He's yeah. fa he, and oh. Everybody who worked on the soundtrack, it's it's like wild. There's Jane Weedlin from the Go-Go's. There's a guy from Counting Crows. Um, there was a, this I can't remember her last name, but she, she was in a black, like, hard rock group in Georgia at the time. Like an all all women all black hard rock group, and she was almost the singing voice of Josie mm. until they realized that they had just cast Rachel Lee Cook as Josie, and there was no way she could convincingly like nobody was going to think she sounded like that. Gotcha. And so ultimately, the the singing voice of Josie became Kay Hanley from Letters to Cleo. Is is there a reason they opted to not cast um, um, trained vocalists for? for these roles that like why they went for Rachel Lee Cook or Rosario Dawson, Tara Reed. My guess, and they haven't, I haven't, I haven't talked to them about that specifically. That's one of the things that like, when I listened back to our first interview, I'm like, Oh, that's for the follow-up. Um, but, mm. uh, my guess, if I had to guess is that, uh, universal knew they wanted Tara because of American, American Pie's Pie success. Right. And so I think that when you get to the point and they did, they did audition a bunch of people who, were musicians mostly for the role of Val because like mm. Universal told them who was going to be Melody that's the drummer and she's the ditz that's Tara Reid yep and then you have your front your front woman which was Josie and they apparently did audition one or two people but they only auditioned people while they were waiting to hear back from Rachel Lee Cook uh Rachel besides the fact that she's all that had just come out also um she had auditioned for Jennifer Love Hewitt's part and can't hardly wait and basically they were like you're really great but you're 15. Gotcha. Okay. So they, they wanted to get her in the door. So, well, yeah. Like... And so they, they already had her in mind when they started, you know. Um, so it's funny because Val, which ended up being Rosario Dawson, is uh, the one character who went through this wild casting process. Uh, and like uh, eventually the last two people before, it, you know, when, when it came down to Rosario, the last two was her and Lisa Left Eye Lopez. Um, okay. 
and but uh, Aaliyah tried out for the part. Wow. Uh, Beyonce Knowles tried out for the part before wow. she was Beyonce Knowles. <laughs> um, wow. And uh, and it's, of course, there's actually a TLC joke in the movie. And so the fact that you had Lisa Lopez like trying out for the part in a movie where they make a joke about TLC is kind of great. <laughs> that was great. If but, they only uh, had a Destiny's Child joke at the same time. I know, right? So, uh, and so the the you you go from Dujour, they get on their plane, and you meet their manager, who's Alan Cumming. And, oh, uh, I love Alan he's, Cumming. He's, so funny. Uh, the 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 villains of this movie are Alan Cumming and Parker Posey. Oh, and, I love Parker, Parker Posey. Posey should be on everyone. Like everyone should know who she is. She's so freaking talented. She's mm. so good. You know, I ju- I just watched um You've Got Mail, and I was like, oh yeah, Parker Posey. Ah. Yeah. yeah, she's great. Patricia makes coffee nervous. Like, that's, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and I'm I'm going to give you really granular detail for the first bit, and then I'll go into a very very general plot synopsis so we can talk about the actual merits of the movie. But, um, so in the first few minutes. Dujour's on their plane. They are all squabbling about petty things that happen when you're spoiled rich kids. And uh, eventually, uh, the Wyatt finally gets tired of settling all of their spats, and he's going to go sit with the pilot. And uh, they say, oh, there's one more thing. And he turns around, and he figures it's going to be some stupid trivial thing. And they play something for him on a Walkman. And he like goes saucer-eyed for a second, and he's like, gee, that's weird. I'm going to look into that for you. And he goes to the front and he uh, tells the the pilot, like, take the Chevy to the levee. And they get out parachutes and they jump out of the plane. Uh, <laughs> leaving to die in a plane crash. Um, <laughs> oh, my God. Take the Chevy to the levee. Oh, my God. Oh my yeah. God. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, which, actually, they ended up having, like, they didn't think about it when they, they put some of the lyrics into the script. They ended up having to pay. Like, they had to license the song, even though it's just that. Like, they had to license wow. the song, and it's in the credits. Um, nice. And they were like, that was probably the most expensive joke in the movie. Oh. Um, yeah. Kind of worth it, though. But yeah. yeah. Oh, good yeah, joke. Absolutely. The other one that was like that was there's a point later on where there's this, like, disaffected golf girl who's not doing what Alan Cumming wants. And he, like, talks into his little microphone. He goes... Smells like Teen Spirit, um, <laughs> but so so you see, you know, Alan Cumming lands in Riverdale, and his new job is to replace Dujour because the evil plot that the bad guys have requires a band. Sure, sure, why and not? So it's a musical. Um, why not? Yeah. yeah. Well, and and so from that point, you you meet the you meet Josie and the Pussycats, and like Alan Cumming finds them. Uh, basically hires them on the spot, not because he's actually heard their music, but because like they're a band and they're hot. And he thinks like, doesn't matter. Like we can market anything. Um, and this is very much in the sp- in the vein of like the Hanna-Barbera cartoon in some ways where it's like every episode, even though it's ostensibly a, like just about a girl group, uh, every episode was like some crazy hijinks, like some Russian scientist who wanted to take over the world. And they were touring and they happen sure. to get their hands on the sure. thing that the bad guys wanted. It's like, you know, very Hanna like, Barbera. It's, it's yeah. almost like Beatles movies more than yes. anything. Yeah, like hey, we're just a band, but we just stumbled upon like this evil spy organization. Yes, with yes. exactly. Yeah. Uh, so, in Josie, the the evil spy organization is uh, operating with the full knowledge and consent of the U.S. government, and what they do is they embed uh, uh, subliminal messages into pop music. In order to get kids to buy things, sure, could be uh, true. <laughs> and there's a great, there's actually like a a, a great montage in there. Uh, it's it's basically a parody of the DNA dinosaur cartoon from Jurassic Park. Okay, um, nice, uh, Mr. DNA. And, where did you come from? And it explains, you know, the the plot. But because they didn't have a ton of money to animate like a whole thing, they they did like ninety seconds of animation, and the whole thing is talked over by Eugene Levy. <laughs> Um, nice. Also, who, the Ameri- also an American Pie. American also Pie, an American yeah. Pie. They actually they shot his part on the American Pie set, like not in the set, but like around the back of it. Wow, um, that's great. But uh, he says, "Hi, I'm Eugene Levy, and I'm an actor." And then he <laughs> delivers this whole monologue about the evil plan. Um, oh, so Eugene man. Levy is part of the conspiracy, and throughout <laughs> the movie, you get various different people who are clearly part of the conspiracy. Uh, Serena Altschul from MTV News. Uh, it has recorded 
like pre-planned canned uh, news segments about how some of these people are going to die if they oh. glom onto the to the <laughs> to the thing. Oh my gosh! Uh, That's there's hilarious. a sequence where they they try to have the pussycats murdered by uh, sending them to TRL to be assassinated. <laughs> and the assassin actually is Carson Daly. Yes! Uh, this, this movie's like the, a time capsule to my, to my oh, early yeah. teen years. Yeah. Like, it's so weird. Wow. I it, love it, it. It's really a time capsule. And I think one of the reasons that, um, that it has really caught on with a lot of people nostalgia-wise is that there are so many things in this movie that just don't exist anymore or don't exist in the same way. And I also yeah. think that's part of why it didn't necessarily catch on with its target audience at the theater at theaters. Cause like it came out in early 2001, like three months this, and this, this is a whole movie about how essentially record companies are evil and basically ruling the world. And then three months later, Napster happened and record companies lost basically all of their power overnight. And yeah, yeah. Uh, so one of the one of the things that uh, if you Google Josie and the Pussycats, one of the very first things that you will find out is that almost every shot of this movie is absolutely saturated in corporate logos. Mm. Um, it's this entire like commentary on the the omnipresence of uh, corporate branding in our everyday lives, and and it's a commentary on product placement. And as you can imagine, a lot of the critics were just like, how can you do a commentary on product placement when your entire movie is filled with product placement? Um, it's called with, satire. <laughs> well, that and they actually didn't get money for any of it. Oh. They, uh-huh. they, they had to seek permission from all these people to get their the logos in the movie. And they, there were people who said, no, I actually have a blueprint over here of the Riverdale Shopping Center from the movie. And... Uh, it's like they were repurposing a real shopping center and just putting up Riverdale stuff. Mm. Uh, and there's like an X through one. And it's like, no, 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 cannot have HSBC because apparently huh. HSBC had said, you can't use our logo. Wow. Um, but uh, so like, it, but throughout the movie, one of the, like one of the decisions they made is that the satire doesn't land if it's Morley cigarettes, you know, uh, the satire works. If the du jour plane is all branded for target. Right. And the right. uh, the hotel suite is branded for Motorola. And like when uh, when Tara Reid has a shower scene, uh, the loofah is uh, a McDonald's French fry <laughs> thing. And when she steps out of the shower, the entire bathroom is just all McDonald's. Um, <laughs> That's right good. down to that's, the the glass that's... door on the shower has the little it's like the McDonald's look, like on a partition at the restaurant. <laughs> yes. The glass and the, <laughs> And so like it became one of these things like you're you're taking shots at the record industry, you're taking shots at consumerism and capitalism. And <laughs> it's also this weird campy over the top thing where your villain is Parker Posey wearing some of the most ridiculous outfits that a human being has ever worn. Um and and it Again, the, the the plot of the movie itself is fairly threadbare. It's like, okay, so they kill Dujour, they set up Josie and the Pussycats as the new biggest band in the world. Then Josie and the Pussycats find out what's happening and have to figure out how to not be murdered and, and reveal it to the world. Okay. Wow. But uh, so that's that's the basic plot of it. But there's a lot of layers to like all of the the commentary on music and the commentary on pop culture and like this idea that like, and I, one of the things I really love about the movie is very much like the thing with the corporate logos where they're like the satire only lands if it's real corporate logos and people understand what it is that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. They did the same thing with du jour. It's like, you're doing this thing. That's like a parody of boy bands. And it's like the, Backdoor Lover is its own thing. And then their second song, the different points, is Du Jour Around the World. And it's very much like one of those uh, one of those songs, like, like Hey, Hey, I'm the Monkey, or We're the Monkeys. Yes. Um, where it's like, mm-hmm. it's a song about the band that like glorifies the band in a ridiculous over-the-top way. Backstreet's uh, Back. Yes, exactly. Yes. Thank yeah. you. That, that's mm-hmm. an even better example. And the Du Jour songs were co-written and produced by a guy who actually was responsible for producing a bunch of NSYNC hits. He knew what he did. And You're like not going to get a better NSYNC parody than that. <laughs> yeah. And I will say, uh, 
because this is one of those things, it's not really a spoiler, and also most people miss it, so I'll say this uh, in the conversation. Uh, there's a point where, okay, so one of the things that is part of the evil plot is behind the music. Mm. Um, they they use it to explain, you know, blah, 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 blah. <gasps> so uh, there is a runner in the movie where uh, Rosaria Dawson's character is being ostracized by the label, and it's basically them manipulating her so that she, so that they can sow division within the band. Uh-huh. It's like, they changed the name of the band from the Pussycats to Josie and the Pussycats and put Rachel Lee Cook's character in for all the posters without asking anybody permission. And so the whole thing is like trying to manipulate Val and make her feel unappreciated and like, you know. And so as she's going through all this, she's watching an episode of Behind the Music where there's a fictional guy who comes on and he's like, well, I was the third person, the captain and Tennille, and I'm the guy who told him to wear that hat. <laughs> and, and I wrote Love Will Keep Us Together, but I tell you what, it didn't. Um, <laughs> and that guy is Kenny Babyface Edmonds. Oh, like, love oh it. I love, <laughs> love that. And so, like, that's his cameo. Uh, Harry Alfont, one of the directors, his cameo was that he was the, the pilot who jumped out of Jujur's plane. Nice. Uh, nice. I have a I have a question about yeah. about all of this, and you know because you said it was a box office bomb, right? It yeah, became yeah. it's successful afterward. Do you think the movie's too smart for its own good for its mainstream audience? It, it kind of reminds me in a way, um, kind of like a Scott Pilgrim versus the World, or any of these things that like the it's all like you think it's this, but it's actually this. It's plot yeah. versus narrative. It's something I like hammer home all the time. Like you critics loved it but you hated it because you were only looking at the plot and not the narrative and it seems like it seems like Josie and the Pussycats is a great example of this there's a, there's certainly an element of that I will say critics hated it too for the most part Damn. um and in in hindsight now if you google like Josie and the Pussycats underrated there are dozens and dozens of stories about how it's this underappreciated gem that nobody understood hmm. and so, not all of them are from like nerd sites and buzzfeed and stuff you have like the la times writing about that oh wow and so okay and so it is like as it's become a cult classic it's finding appreciation also within the kind of corridors of, of power in the, the film industry but yeah it i definitely think that it was one of those films where they they marketed it very badly uh they they thought one of the things that uh was said in kind of an autopsy uh, when the directors were talking to Universal ahead of the DVD release or something, was that uh, they were looking for a Nickelodeon movie, and instead they got an MTV movie. Huh. Interesting. And, okay. And so there's an element of that. Um, and, and I think that a lot of the people, like if you tell people essentially in your marketing, this is Spice World, then when you go to the movies and you see this movie where and again, like Tara Reed's only shower scene is like this goofy thing where she's got a loofah made of French fries. And, you know, and, and so I will give uh, Harry and Deb credit, like in that subgenre of like girl power movies with a bunch of hot chicks, they uh, were much less exploitative of mm. the girls mm-hmm. than you would usually see. Uh, part of that is their directing style. And part of that is probably the fact that the girls were all like 18 at the time. But yeah, and maybe they were even trying to comment on that particular genre in, you know, like they because sometimes like you have to you can't satire something without showing something. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, but I Um, think uh, it's it's interesting because like it at the time didn't connect with the audience that Universal thought it would. And part of the reason that much like Scott Pilgrim. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And one of the things that's really interesting about Scott Pilgrim that doesn't really apply to Josie. Um, is Scott Pilgrim is one of the first of these films to really find its audience in a big way in a world where there was no video stores. Right. Now, Things like Mallrats or Josie and the Pussycats, a lot of the time, it's like, yeah, this movie bombed, but it was guaranteed in stock at Blockbuster and millions of people saw it. Yeah. You know? Right. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, to me, like one of the things that's really interesting is that we're we're seeing kind of a construction of the first generation of cult classics that have happened without a built-in system to make them cult classics. Um, and that's part a of it, really too, I think, interesting part of reason, observation. I love that. Well, as the video store guy, it's what I. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I also think one of the things that happened with Josie is uh, when you look at a movie that's like 
kind of snarky and uh, and you know either a cult classic or a satire these things until pretty recently and even now to some extent but much more until pretty recently were really gendered mm, like mm. one of the things that you know it's like it's like fight club can be a cult classic three months after it's in theaters because like the people who are interested in that film are the people you look to and expect them to be into cult classics sure um and josie and the pussycats doesn't really have that at least on the surface like mm-hmm. it really needed to cultivate a fan base over a period of time and right I think a true they, true root of the word cultivate right and really yeah. needed to yeah sorry yeah sorry. no that's no how my bra- that's how my brain works <laughs> sorry <laughs> but that's you know so to to me that's part of it um there's a lot of little bits uh and and part of it is honestly just that they it was the wrong movie at the wrong moment um you know i do think that there's a lot of this stuff that's just ineffable like uh i think that there a, a lot of people looked at this movie and there hadn't been a lot of really mainstream like because this movie uh, you know depending on who you talk to the budget was somewhere between like 29 and 40 million dollars and it made like 19 back Hmm. and but there there weren't a lot of 40 million dollar movies being made that were like anti-capitalist screeds right <laughs> um, and and so i think a lot of people just went in and they're just like what the fuck am i looking at um, yeah it just doesn't compute for them like it's just not I, something that they can even like wrap their minds ser- around a serious question too um um when when in 2001 did this come out because it's the uh, pre and post nine eleven world, and pre post nine eleven is really pro capitalist. Like you're yeah. you're coming out of the heyday of the nineties where we just love stuff, yeah, and that's it, all that matters. It hit. Uh, it was April eleventh was its domestic release date. Wow. Yeah. And one of the things about that is that uh, it was ostensibly a big summer movie, but April is obviously a dumping ground for that kind of movie. Um, sure is and mm-hmm. the argument universal made is that the year before uh the mummy had just come out in early may and so it's like well we're expanding the summer window which of course ironically now we've actually done um yeah. but at the time like dumping something in early april was dumping the movie that's and, right yeah and i think that there was a lot of folks like one of the things on that josie and the podcasts uh podcast that i talked about during the interview that uh, Harry and Deb gave to her, they talk about how when they had the screenplay ready and they were looking to cast, they were sharing it with a bunch of other producers they knew. And the general consensus was, why are you doing this? Uh-huh. And, and so I think that uh, there was there, even within the creative community, I think this is one of those movies that a lot of people didn't get until later. And it's funny because I think that m- music people came to it faster than movie people okay so um, i i wanted to ask about that because like like you said this is right on the cusp of napster happening yeah and i feel like this is like a little bit ahead of its time in that sense where people grew to hate the music industry maybe in the way that they were that, that this movie is is making fun of the industry well and it's funny because there's a there's a metallic a metallica joke in the third act of the movie <laughs> really and, and i won't say what it is because uh if you're ever going to watch the movie one of the best moments of the movie immediately precedes the Metallica joke. Okay. But um, there's a Metallica joke in it. And all I could think watching it later is like, Oh yeah, we didn't hate them yet. (laughs) Pre pre Napster, pre, pre all of that before they were, they were holding out and refusing to, to to let that stuff happen and suing and and all that. But it was also, it was one of those things where uh, this is a movie made by a couple of people who were like, they weren't even particularly anti-corporate or anti-establishment, but Harry and Deb grew up in like the, the era that I did. Like they're they're a couple of years older than me. I was born in 1980, and so they grew up very much in the era of grunge. And so mm-hmm. sure. when you get to the late 90s, and there's all of these kind of boy bands and girl bands, and everything feels very manufactured, and everything feels very saccharine. Uh, that an element of this movie was just like, and and they they come clean and they're like, no, we enjoy a bunch of that stuff too, but part of you wants to believe that like there's got to be some sinister reason that people are glomming onto this crap. And so I think that that's part of why, like, I mean, Babyface obviously got it or he wouldn't have been producing the, all the music in the movie. Right. Um, and I think that, 
couple years after the movie came out, uh, Deb had gotten invited to a U2 concert. And when she was introduced to Bono as she directed Josie and the Pussycats, he's like, I love that movie. You really got it. Oh, nice. That's, that's great. That's, that's great. Yeah, that, it feels like they were maybe it didn't hit play because they were a little too close to the industry and there wasn't they needed that one outside voice going, OK, you just need to ex- explain a little bit, just explain yeah. a little bit. And I mean, like I, I think of I think of Lord of the Rings that way, this, you know, because you had a three person team writing Lord of the Rings and one was super into it. One was super not and one kind of new and that balancing act. Um, that that balancing act of like, what can we cross out? What can we be merciless about? Really matters when when you're talking about stuff that's near and dear to people, yeah. whether it's industries or corporations or comic book characters or anything. Like, you do need somebody somewhere that's like, no, it's okay. You can cross that off. Like, you don't have to do it exactly like that. Sure. I will say too that one of the things with Josie, at least to me, is that you it came right before studios started giving audiences credit for being a little more savvy. Mm. Like at the time when Josie was, was being made and marketed, it was still kind of widely assumed that the audience is stupid. And so you look at like the promotion for the film, you look at some of the changes that they wanted made to the script. You look at all these, like all this background noise that you only know if you know, but like all of that seems to be pressing in the general direction of, like a studio that didn't have faith in the high concept and didn't really get it and thought that audiences wouldn't get it. And I think that one of the things we've seen in the the 20 years since then is that audiences are smarter than they get credit for. I mean, they're not always super smart, but they're definitely smarter than they get credit for. Yeah. I mean, studios are still doing that. I don't think that much has super changed. Sometimes it has a little bit, but you're, you're right that some studios are more willing to go on the, Mm -hmm. like an audience going, Okay, they are smart because most studios are like, okay, your audience thinks they're smart, but they're actually yeah. dumb. So right. go to that. Right. Well, I um, think for me, one of the things that I think is really interesting is that this movie came out and it was distributed by MGM and Universal. And so it's very staid voices in the film industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just, I actually remember watching the movie for the first time in theaters because I went in theaters because even though I was a 21 year old guy and not at all who they were marketing to, uh, Rachel Lee Cook's super hot. And so. I went and saw it in theaters and I remember even just watching it in theaters, they started playing backdoor lover over the MGM lion. Like the Mm. first, the first like, Hey, of the song came on as the MGM lion was starting to roar. And I just remember being like, okay, so it's that kind of movie. Uh At that time in 2001, you didn't see that a lot nowadays. Like, that's almost a cue. There's certain kinds of movies who that's how they market it. It's like, think of Spider-Verse, think of Birds of Prey, think of Guardians of the Galaxy. Those are all movies that use the standard elements of filmmaking in a way to just cue you in immediately, like, no, we're messing with you. Mm-hmm, that's and, right. Yeah. And nobody did that at the time that Josie was doing it. And I'm not saying that, like, they set this standard or anything, but I am saying that, like, if it had come out five years later, a lot more people would have immediately gotten it. Sure. You know, it's an early right. example of that. Maybe maybe yeah. that would have done something for its its staying power or its, its success at the box office even. Yeah. yeah. If I can comic book connect it for a bit, it, it sounds almost like it's like the Blade before the X-Men before Spider-Man. Like it just, you need yeah. it. I mean, and Blade was more successful, but you kind of needed that one movie that where people, like somebody raised an eyebrow and went, oh, I see. I can do something with that. Yeah. And then you got a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. So it really does deserve maybe best movie ever you know well it's, it's funny too because uh one of the things uh so the, the filmmakers n- haven't done another feature film they moved into tv after this they still do a bunch of rewrites and stuff but like this movie really harmed their career and for like three hmm. years it really harmed rachel's career hmm. and uh you know rachel did a recent interview where she said like that that you know, the failure of Joseph and the Pussycat sent me to movie jail. I had to like go and be the lead on a couple of, of TV shows for a while and prove that people would still watch me. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, and so one of the things that's interesting about this, they didn't realize that there was this kind of cult following that was bubbling up until just a few years ago. It really became a thing on once they were on Twitter and people could reach out to them directly. Mm. And well, interesting. Yeah. 
That I mean, that has. Re- I mean, obviously, that's really changed everything for studios, yeah. where they oh, can yeah. be like, "Hey, Twitter, how do you feel about this? Yeah. You know, let us know so we can market to you. We're basically a giant test group." Yeah, you know. So in in 2016, for the the 15th anniversary of the movie, um, Mondo actually did the first ever vinyl release of the soundtrack. Wow! And here's the thing: the movie had flopped. The soundtrack uh, went gold, and I wow. mean that's not massive; it's not platinum or anything. But it like five hundred thousand people bought that soundtrack. That's more than went to see the movie in theaters, mm-hmm. probably. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and again, like part of that is just a testament to like you have songs written by Adam Schlesinger and Jane from the Go Go's, and like there's this a bunch of really great talents, um, and Kay Hanley from Letters to Cleo, like it's it's some of her best work as a vocalist. Um, one of the things that she has said over the years is that she, because it wasn't Cleo and because it wasn't like, she wasn't even the face of Josie. Like a lot of people, you'd have to know to know, like you'd have to go digging through the, the liner notes mm-hmm. to figure out who was singing. And so she was like, that let me off my leash and I could just do whatever the hell I wanted because like almost the protection of anonymity. And so the soundtrack has always been a thing that a lot of people really loved. And it's this combination of like a really good time capsule of what was going on at the time. And like it was, it's a bunch of like essentially power punk uh, or a, a pop punk uh, mm-hmm. like anthems, um, you know, with feminist themes. And mm-hmm. so the, the soundtrack had always done really well. Uh, and Mondo records put out this vinyl edition and for the vinyl, they uh, did a release party at Alamo Draft House, uh, or with Alamo Draft House at some hotel in, in Los Angeles. Um, mm-hmm. And for that party, and unfortunately, I didn't get to go to this because I would have killed. But uh, <laughs> right, they they did this a screening of the movie with a Q and A with Harry, Deb, uh, Rachel Lee Cook, Tara Reid, Rosario Dawson, Gabriel Mann, Missy Pyle. Oh my gosh! They like and, they they came for it. That's awesome. And and also, they got the band back together. And like uh, letters to uh, Kay Hanley and Adam Schlesinger and a bunch of other people who'd worked on the album played the soundtrack front to back. And it was the first time oh, that, that's they, so that most cool. of them had ever played those songs in public. Um, and so that's very cool. And they sold out this place. This like you know, 10,000 seat or whatever it was place that they had in, in Los Angeles. It was a huge thing. It was the number one trending topic of like that night on Twitter. And uh, you're sitting here going, this is a movie that was 15 years old and didn't make any money. And it's the top wow. topic on Twitter tonight. And it sold out this concert and screening. And like, you had all these people who showed up in cosplay and for a lot of the people who were involved with the film who weren't like Rachel, Harry and Deb, you know, because Rachel, Harry, and Deb, because they're the three people most associated with it, they would get the fan letters and they would get the DMs. And they would, I remember ages ago, uh, Rachel was doing some Ask Me Anything on Reddit for whatever project it was. And she ended up getting pulled away to a sub to a thread somewhere else about how wonderful Josie and the Pussycats was. Oh, wow. And when she popped in for like a second just to be like, oh my God, you guys, you have no idea how much this means to me. Like, that was like, I, I somehow found my way into that thread. I can't remember how, but I saw that and I was just like, okay, so this is what makes, like that actually is what made me want, that is why I started the Emerald City Video Podcast. Because uh, I, I was just like, you know, I want to talk to somebody about Josie and the Pussycats. And and so- uh, Frank and I buddies, get that. Yeah, we, yeah, get, we that. get that. <laughs> yeah. And so that's, uh, but a bunch of my buddies who had never seen the film or hadn't seen it since 2001, um, we're like, yeah, sure, let's do it. And and we all worked at the video store together. And so we were just like, okay, so we'll do this as a first episode. And then after that, they'll just be like, we're the guys who hung out at the video store and talked about movies. That's just what we're going to do now with microphones. Um, nice. But so it's it's this interesting thing because a lot of people who weren't Harry, Devin, and Rachel had no real idea that like in the intervening time, this was like frothing up and becoming a cult classic. And right. so you get to this thing and it's like Gabriel Mann and Missy Pyle are there and they're just like, there's 10,000 people here for Josie and the Pussycats. <laughs> like, that's, and it was great. That's got to be nuts for them. 
Yeah, well, and it was great, too, because one of the things is the movie wasn't tracking well in 2001. And so when they had the big, like, premiere event, like, they did have a premiere and there was a red carpet and you had a bunch of, like, non-Josie celebrities who showed up wearing cat ears and stuff to bring their daughters to the movies. Um, there's a great shot of Kiefer Sutherland. Look, he absolutely has no interest but wearing pink leopard print pussycat ears, uh, <laughs> holding his daughter's hand. Uh, That's amazing. Uh, but so it was an event. It did like they did have a premiere and all that. But like by then, it was already pretty clear that the movie was not going to make any money. And so for the directors and for the studio, it was just like, well, this is kind of pro forma. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that reunion tour or the reunion concert that they did was almost kind of like this is the premiere like this is the chance for you to actually have people come up and say like no this means something to me and to have people singing along with the uh with the soundtrack and so that's one of those things where to me the narrative of josie and the pussycats isn't just like my my oral history a lot of the book isn't going to be like i'm going to be talking to as many people from the cast and crew and studio and everything as i can but a lot of the book is going to be a segment on just the fans and talking to people about like, when did you first know that this movie was a thing that existed? How did you fall in love with this movie? And like kind of trying to track this evolution of like, how does a box office disaster that like materially harmed the careers of people involved in it become this cult, this cult classic that so many people love very deeply. Because to me, like that's a fascinating arc. Like yes, yeah, yeah. For, that's a, and that's then, a, for the absolutely. people and for the people who even escaped the the black hole yeah. of like studio oppression, you know, and who who were able to to kind of you know levy that into something, you know, Chevy to the yeah. levy, levy <laughs> you know, um, well to something. One of the things I will say is that uh, even the people who. Because, I mean, when you say, like, Harry and Deb and Rachel all love this movie, it's like, well, they kind of have to. Because they're, like, they're the people who were principally responsible for this movie existing, you know? But right. when you talk to so many people, uh, you guys are plugged into the geek stuff. You probably know that, like, whether you love him or hate him, Zack Snyder clearly cultivates a great relationship with his cast and crew on, on, on set. Sure. For sure, they they Everybody. love him. Yeah, love or hate Zack Snyder, that no one will disparage him on set. It's yeah. true. What a what a nice guy that guy is. Yeah, and and this movie kind of feels like that because like Alan Cumming, who has done seven hundred things since about yep. a year ago, was doing an interview where he was like, "Oh man, Joseph, I love that movie." And you know, I'm I'm in a movie with Rosario coming up, and it's the first time we've worked together in twenty years. And then like. uh couple of years ago i just stumbled across it yesterday i can't remember what i was looking for but i i stumbled across an interview that donald Faison and seth green did where they were talking about the enduring kind of appeal of du jour uh-huh. and and the fact that they still have people who sing things at them and then if you listen to fake doctors real friends which is donald Faison, zach yes. Raff's mm-hmm. scrubs rewatch podcast yep um i can't remember when it was like six weeks ago or something there was an episode where there was some like long process by which they started out as like, oh, we should do a Wonder Twins movie together where you and I are, are the Wonder Twins. And <laughs> Would then, watch. And then, yeah. it, right? Absolutely. Yeah. But yeah. so it eventually evolved to them talking about like Hanna-Barbera and stuff. And, and uh, Braff mentions Josie and the Pussycats. And Faison just immediately without, without any further prompting launches into nobody rocks the mic like du jour <laughs> and like goes through the entire song <laughs> and you're just sitting here going man this is almost 20 years later this is a movie that failed this is and and like there's again like on that podcast there's like a million and a half people listening or some crazy thing it's like there's probably more people listening to that podcast than watched this movie in theaters right <laughs> um, that's so there's, wild there's something to be said that everybody involved seemed to really enjoy the experience and to me like again that's always like there's something special about that kind of stuff to me mm-hmm. like even if the end result doesn't make a ton of money like so much of this stuff like i've talked to so many people over the years who are just basically like your favorite thing is just a job like mm. not to disparage it not to anything but like this thing that you're obsessed with is like it it's exhausting because i was there for 14 hours a day 
Right. And, right. Uh, and for whatever reason there, you get certain projects where people are just like, I don't care that I was there 14 hours a day. It's my favorite thing too. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's Sean so Aston special when you that have that connection. Of the Rings. With... Yeah. yeah. Same thing. Like, or, yeah, I don't care. It was like, it was one of the best times of my life and I'm happy to talk about it with you. Yeah. It's so yeah. special when you can have that connection with that person, right? When you, when you like meet them at a convention or something and say, Hey, this thing, uh, this underappreciated thing like meant yeah. something to me, and when they when they love that thing too, yeah. um, it's just like that's those are some of the best conversations you can have with those folks. And as somebody who's met a lot of these people, like I've I've had the other conversation where I'm just like, oh man, I'm a huge fan of insert obscure thing here, and they just look at you and they're like, so you're the one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's right. Um, yeah, yeah, you. Yeah, I. Yeah, you I, read my book. I'm like, yes, yeah. no one else did, but I did. Like when I told Billy D. Williams that I liked his album of uh, of sixties standards, and he was like, "You've you've listened to that? that <laughs> yeah, all right. Yeah." Or and I told Burt Ward that I liked his you? dog it food. Was? Same, right. Yeah, same thing. Yeah. <laughs> I gotta say, one of the one of the most fun, and I've only done a handful of interviews so far for the for the book because mm-hmm. I I. I kind of told this to you guys off off mic. It's not really out of school to say this, but like because I work for comicbook.com, which is owned by CBS, I'm exclusive to CBS. And in order to do anything that isn't through comicbook.com, I have to get permission essentially. And it's sure. a long drawn out process. And so uh, I, I didn't announce that I was working on this. I didn't start working on it. I mostly just made lists of like, this is what I'm going to do when I start until I got permission and then, like, once I got permission, I immediately, not immediately, but, like, three or four days later, I tweeted about it because I was just, like, a third of this book is going to be talking to fans. And mm-hmm. eventually, somebody's just going to tweet, like, holy shit, some guy's writing a book about my favorite movie. And I'd rather it be me who says that than somebody yep. else. Yep. You know? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. So that, but one of the first interviews I did was with this guy who uh, has a, a YouTube review uh that is called something along the lines of Josie and the Pussycats the best movie ever made sure. and it's not a super critical uh like, like it's not it's not a, a super intellectual look at the movie it really is like one of those things where he raises some cool points he looks at some interesting things they did in the movie but mostly it just keeps coding back to and that doesn't matter because Josie and the Pussycats is the best movie ever made um and the love the love is I deeper than him, the flaws and that's yeah, that's why we all like the Star when Wars I, prequels. That's, there yeah. you go, exactly. Right. So so I interviewed this guy. I'm, I'm talking to a bunch of the people who have written, like, the this is an under, underappreciated masterpiece kind of stories. Mm. And uh, so when I talked to this guy, I, I can't remember what my question was exactly, but he said something along the lines of, like, so I always figured I was the biggest fan of this movie that, that is out there. And then I went to a fan screening in Brooklyn, and this guy showed up wearing the original prop ears from the movie and a du jour t-shirt and blah, blah. blah. And I was just like, that, that was me. <laughs> <laughs> like I have, I have the prop ears over here with the original du jour CD prop. Oh my <laughs> gosh. That's, that's amazing. amazing. I love just, that. One of those things where you're talking to somebody who you're, you're like, I'm talking to you cause you're a super fan. And he's like, no, you know who you should talk to this crazy dude from Brooklyn. And I'm like, yeah, that, I, that was me. Me. <laughs> honestly i don't think we could top that story right at that moment so yeah. i'm gonna i'm gonna honestly. say russ you are welcome to come back at any time and update us on the yeah, progress of the book we could talk about something else and you could talk about the book and something else you tell us when it's done come back anytime this was please do yeah tell us one more time uh what's the working title uh best movie ever an oral history of 2001's josie and the pussycats Right and, on. Uh, and if you want updates, because again, like I shouldn't have announced anything this early. It's just that I wanted to be the voice that actually said it out loud in public. And so if you want updates, once they start coming, uh, go to josiebook.com. I've set up a MailChimp link there. So right now there's nothing to say uh, because I'm trying to keep everything fairly close to the vest. But my plan is to have ebooks available for people on April 11th for the 20th anniversary that's a good good awesome. deal and okay. so uh sometime in the next two months you're going to start to see the first like real details emerging and then within six months you're gonna like i'm going to have all the interviews done and it's just going to be a matter of collating them into some coherent order cool cool 
But yeah, thanks guys. It's been a pleasure. And I definitely will come back and we can talk about something that isn't necessarily Josie. <laughs> oh, I mean, I, I <laughs> that, mean, that no good. offense to Frank, but hit me with your best shot is always like, okay, I'll, maybe I'll try it, but I'm definitely going to watch Josie yeah. and the Pussycats. Like, oh, I'm so in. Me, like, when I'm we so were at Hanna-Barbera, never mind the rest of it. So yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, if you want to watch it free, uh, the the thing it's streaming on right now is HBO can Max. Do. No, can right do. Can do the okay. Max. The upside is if you don't have HBO Max, you can get it off Amazon for like seven ninety nine nice. or something. Because since the movie wasn't a huge hit, but has a bunch of recognizable faces, uh, Universal has kept it essentially in print in perpetuity for five and ten dollar bins. Ah, right. that's good. All right, right. That's well, how there you go. Keep, that's how you keep the cult alive. So yeah. exactly. And there's a commentary track on there. Uh, which uh, which is a lot of fun, and also uh, when I talked to Kevin Smith about Josie, he told me uh, the commentary track on Josie and the Pussycats is the thing that that made him not want to do a commentary track for uh, Zach and Mary make a porno. Oh, it's very much like uh, Josie and the Pussycats that that commentary track was supposed to have been recorded after a disastrous opening weekend. <laughs> gotcha, 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 gotcha. Uh, that's, that's good. Zach and that, Mary, all underrated Kevin Smith movie. Yeah, also yeah, a ton, ton of, of fun. fun. Yeah. yeah, great, so fun. Um, it looks like uh, Josie and the Pussycats, not only the movie but also the animated series, as well as Josie and the Pussycats in Space, yes. are all on HBO I Max. S- yes, that's um, right. Because Warner Brothers has almost all of that old Hanna Barbera stuff. Now. Yeah, right. yeah. So this is all. I'm throwing all of this into uh, the show notes along with links to uh the website for the book and uh and a bunch of other things we've mentioned throughout this conversation russ thank you so much where can folks find you if they want to uh follow you on the internet for uh for things josie related and unrelated sure i'm at russ burlingame which is r-u-s-s-b-u-r-l-i-n-g-a-m-e and that's really long i'm not going to repeat it so the other one is ecv underscore podcast for the emerald city video podcast which as i said is where i talk about movies with a bunch of dudes who used to work at a video store um and uh, that basically Twitter is the best place to find me because I, I I really don't like Facebook at all. You can follow me on Facebook. It's Russ Burlingame. Uh, it's a verified page, so you'll just see the check and you'll know that that's the right one. However, I will say that pretty much is exclusively me posting links to my comicbook.com work and basically nothing else, which also goes up on Twitter. Gotcha. I also right hate on. Facebook, so I will not be following you there <laughs> as I do not have an account. <laughs> okay. I'm not actually a huge fan of Twitter either, but uh, pragmatically speaking, uh, for what I do for a living, I have to have. It's kind of kind of got to be there. Kind of good to be there. Yeah, even if you don't, even if yeah. you don't have to say all the things, that's okay. So, but yeah. Russ, thanks so much for coming on. This was a blast. Yeah, thanks yeah. guys. I had fun, fun, even though Thank it was just you. me talking. So saying I had fun isn't. Please, I'm a I'm a teacher. I, I talk all day. It's, it's, it's nice to sit guys. back and <laughs> let somebody else talk. I'm like, I talk eight hours a day. This is great. I didn't have to do anything. <laughs> It's awesome. It's awesome. All right. Thanks so much, guys. It's been a pleasure. And I, I, like I said, I'll be back whenever you want me. I'm, I'm always down to talk about uh, pop culture, nerdy stuff. Oh, when we're here for it. Sounds good, man. We will we will take you up on that. Um, in, in the meantime, you can find us at BeerWithGeeks.com, at BeerWithGeeks on Twitter. Follow us on uh, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify. Anywhere you can find podcasts, you'll find us. Uh, thoughtbubbleaudio.com is where you'll find the rest of the network. Patreon.com slash thoughtbubbleaudio if you want to kick us a couple of bucks and help us keep doing this thing every week. Uh, and uh, I'm at Frank Ramblings on Twitter. Tim is at TimothyPG13. And that is going to do it for us this week. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, cheers. cheers.